the site you might be noticing that there's a couple of affiliations that I have uh, one of which is the Onnit Labs affiliate program so if you're interested in getting any kind of uh, hardware such as the Blendtec blender or uh, any of the healthy food that Onnit has available please click through and um, you can help yourself out and also help help support the podcast another recent affiliation is the Datsusara gear bags um, that's we just had Chris on the podcast uh, earlier this week and if you're interested in getting uh, MMA gear bags or uh, you know geese fight shorts that kind of stuff please click through at the link we have on the site and you can once again help yourself by getting antimicrobial equipment or just really really good looking stuff to help carry your equipment around in and you can also help us out by uh, supporting the podcast and uh, Kyle as you know I'm wearing these uh, pretty snappy pants here, and you know, you've probably seen me wear these things quite a bit. This is uh, my clothing arts, high-performance, critical mission, mission critical, <laughs> coming at you at full effect, BDU pants. I've been wearing these things, I don't know, for like three weeks now, so uh, you know, they look great. But uh, yeah, if you're interested in getting something that's going to last for a long time and perform really well, go on over to clothing arts, and uh, you can get a... Um, a discount by going in for EWB20. So today I've got Lucid joining me, and uh, I know him as a stand up comedian, uh, spoken word artist, uh, hip hop aficionado. Uh, recently, he performed some spoken word at the most recent um, These Dreams Are Made for Mortals uh, art show, and uh, that was a really cool experience. So I'm going to turn the mic over. So Lucid, how do you describe yourself? I know you have so many different things. Uh, well, if first and foremost, I would say primarily as a lyricist. Um, I wouldn't really, I mean, I write rhymes, I write songs, I write lyrics. I wouldn't, I tend to try to steer away from poetry per se. Uh, I definitely would say it's more uh, lyricism as far as song format and just writing rhymes in general. Uh, poetry tends to be a little bit more. Uh, a subjective sort of format. I have nothing against poetry. It's just sort of the scene that I came out of and that made me want to be creative was, uh, you know, lyricist and rappers, but, you know, more so lyricist than rappers, which is a broader term. And so, yeah, as a lyricist and a suspension enthusiast, per se, uh, via the Disgraceland Hook Squad, that's uh, my affiliated crew, and uh, aspiring stand-up comedian, you could say. <laughs> So what's this uh, suspension stuff all about? I mean, we talked about this briefly uh, in the past. And uh... Uh, well, I guess I could say suspension. It's a it's a tribal art form. It's I think started off as a sort of as a ritual practice and initiation rite. And over the past few decades, primarily, uh, you know, it came to the American forefront again during during the nineties. And over the past decade, especially uh, in the new millennium, 
has taken on uh, leaps and bounds as far as people finding innovations and different ways to suspend people. Uh, for me, I think a lot of different people suspend for different reasons. Some spe- people do it for spiritual purposes. Some people do it for sport. Some people do it for the nuance of just, you know, a new experience, maybe like skydiving or something like that. But for me, it's primarily been, uh, I did it as a, the first time I suspended was as a dedication to a friend that had passed away. And also uh, for the spiritual purposes and just to test myself. So like what, what's actually the, the process like? I mean, you know, I, I personally don't know that much about it. I mean, I've seen right. back in the 90s, you know, there was like the whole modern primitive kind of movement. Right. And, uh, you know, I understand that it involves, uh, you know, these sort of endurance rituals and whatnot. So for in your experience, uh, what's, you know, basically how, what's, what's the whole rundown of ritual? Uh, let me just clarify. I am not a practitioner. Oh, okay. I'm an enthusiast. Oh, all right. Uh, okay. Members of my crew are practitioners. And so I'm going to try to explain the best I can, but don't take my word as law on it. Uh, this is just my explanation giving it. But I would say for the most part, um, there's piercings. There's a lot of different positions that you can go up by. Uh, most people start out with the suicide position, which is basically it's uh, two hooks, you know, pierced into your back. And they call it the suicide position because when you go up, it looks like, you know, you might have hung yourself. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so you get pierced in your back and then there's rigging, there's rigging mechanisms and it's all done to sort of weight proportion and there's definitely a science and mechanics behind it. You know, the piercers, if you're going to be suspended, you definitely want to make sure, you know. You're familiar, you've seen people suspend others before, that they're certified piercers, that they're, you know, um, up to par in, in bio and, you know, blood containment and that sort of thing. Oh, wow. okay. So um, it's a team effort. There's definitely, from the piercers to the bio to the rigging, you usually have about, you know, four or five members of a, of a crew, or sometimes you might have two, two people or one person individual who's able to do all of that on their own. But for the most part, most suspensions are done as a team effort. And uh, through the years, it's definitely gotten more, how can I say, the standards are definitely more clarified. And it's definitely, uh, it's safe. I'd say mechanically and structurally, it's safer than skydiving. Okay. You know what I mean? Given, given all the risk involved. For the most part, it's definitely a science and, and a practice that people have spent years if not decades fine-tuning as far as uh the safety of it and whatnot it, what um what's the history behind all that because I, I mean I, my understanding is that it's this ancient practice that uh, indigenous people have uh, gotten uh, into again uh, not as an enthusiast not as a official practitioner from my understanding it started with uh native americans right and uh you know through there i heard that there were people doing it few people doing it in the 60s and 70s that were sort of known and then uh one guy in particular uh alan faulkner really brought it to the forefront uh in in the 90s again and started to make it sort of a national and international thing uh not that it's mainstream yet but he definitely started bringing it more into the known fold uh my particular crew um is known as disgraceland we were founded in new york city by uh, the late Armand de la Rosa. And 
we've branched out into many other chapters around the country and affiliations. And right now, my friends are actually at a suspension convention called Mecca. Okay. Uh, so that's what they're doing. I'm here with you. And uh, it's definitely, it's a progressing art form and, and way of life. And more than anything, I think when I suspended, for me, I'd watch people suspend for five years by many different, you know, positions. When I did it, I wanted it to be to commemorate something. For me, it was uh, graduating, you know what I mean? Finishing sure. audio school and whatnot and moving on. And I definitely wanted it to have uh, a specific value as for the first time I did it. And uh, when I did it, it's a scary thing. Uh, actually, we, my friend Armin that passed away, we left his funeral like that night. And went and we sort of had a celebration and a commemoration of his life and everybody got together and uh, band played uh, Nassau Chainsaw. Oh, okay. My brother's in that yeah. band. Uh, and oh, you, I, you know, you know Sammy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, yeah. She's one of my girlfriend. I just saw Sammy around. the yeah. other night okay. in Penn Station. Nice. It's pretty funny. Nice. Yeah. Shout out to Sammy. <laughs> uh, so I actually we left the funeral and uh we went to the venue and I suspended that night also um there were a few other first timers and the thing I'd like people to understand about suspension more than an individual feat or act it's for me and my crew it's a family oriented thing you know um it's very it is tribal okay. even even in even in the modern culture that it is all the crews, uh, I guess, around the country and, you know, the ones that are around the world, they're, they're very tribal based with each other as far as the way we associate and we treat and we bring each other, you know, into the fold. Uh, it was weird, man, leaving a funeral, going to suspend, you're nervous. It was something that I had prepared myself for, right. uh, for years. And that's the thing about it. You don't, you think you're ready until you get there and your time's coming up. And I, I was very nervous, but I, I knew I was in good hands. I knew I was with people that were going to handle me right. And I, like, you know, I was going to be okay. And uh, how can I say, I tell anybody, I think anyone can do it physically. Uh, uh, I don't think it's the worst pain you could ever go through, but it's just a different kind of pain that you're not familiar with. And I think that's the, the sort of shocking thing about it that you watch people go up for the first time. Some of them takes them a few minutes to get off the ground okay. just because it's such an unnatural, unfamiliar feeling. Once you start to feel the rig pull you up on the hooks and everything in your body's telling you, no, 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 this isn't like, what are we doing here? And you kind of just have to let your mind, you know, do the work and tell yourself, I've watched other people do this. I can do this. I'm prepared for it. This is something that I'm willing to give myself to, you know, right. um, it, it's definitely more of a mental process than it is physical. Uh, once you're off the ground, there, there is a substantial amount of pain, but, um, again, if you can get through that threshold of pain, your endorphins kick in, and that's sort of when, if you can, you know, free yourself and let go, the ride begins. And then, you know, the, the freeness from gravity and the weightlessness. And I sort of considering it, I've heard a lot of other friends of mine describe it as setting yourself back to zero. Okay. As sort of a, a cleansing of yeah. sorts. And that, the, the times that I've suspended, that's, that's what I got out of it, you know. I can, uh, I can see that. Uh, 
do you you know do you hallucinate like how how long is it tip typically how long are you up there like what happens uh, that you- that depends on the person i mean i haven't hallucinated uh i mean again it depends on the person i've heard varying degrees of what it's did for people uh for me people at least in my crew we suspend people sober Okay. That that's a really important yeah, part yeah, of it. Yeah. You definitely want to be clear headed. You want to be able to take it in. You want to have your faculties about you. Right. Uh, so I mean, as far as the effect, like I said, uh, the endorphin rush that you get out of it, it's it's more than anything I've felt in any other format of physical exertion. You know, and uh, well, you know, I've yeah. read about you know shamanic breathing and all this other sort of stuff, and I was just curious if it if it was similar to something like that, where you know you sort of push your body limits, like your physical limits, and uh, you know different you know chemicals in your your brain releases oh, different yeah. chemicals and whatnot. So I, yeah. I was curious if the experience was something akin to that. Where, oh yeah, absolutely. I think uh, as far as the psychological yeah. and physiological effect. Uh, I would I think it's akin to definitely what people get out of yoga or what they get out of skydiving or what they get out of MMA fighting. Right. You know, it's just that, that thing where not that you're necessarily, I think with anything worth doing, there's some sacrifice involved for the potential reward, you know? And I think, um, and even after you come down, it just sort of, I think for me, it opened me up to everything else going on around me, you know? You're more you're more keen on the air that you breathe. You're right. more keen on uh, the colors you see. Sure. Uh, again, my experience might not be another person's that does it, but I think everybody is going to react to it differently. But for the most part, and for, for my friends and uh, people I consider like family that have done it and have done it for years and continuously, it's had positive effects. No, it's interesting. Yeah. So going back to um, you know, these dreams are made for mortals, and uh, you know your performance there. Like, how did you get involved in that? Because there's been a couple of those over the last, I think maybe one or two years. Yeah, That's yeah. Something um, Carlin's been doing right. fairly regularly. So I got involved with it. Uh, sort of how I got I got to know you, just being at a lot of metal shows, especially at uh, Saint Vitus. Yeah. Shout out to Saint Vitus. Uh, meeting Carlin, and there was a period. Um, well, let me start back to the beginning. I'll bring sure. you full circle. Yeah, bring it around. Uh, I started writing when I was a teenager. And first two or three years, I was kind of okay at it. Not really great, just trying to progress. And then I went through a long period of like, for a couple of years, like deep, dark spell depression. And uh, it sort of cut off my creative ability. And I wasn't able to write for quite a few years. And uh, it more or less destroyed me. And I started to have um, sleep paralysis. I don't know if you know about that. No, what's what is that? Uh, sleep paralysis is basically, it's a REM state where it's between when your your mind is waking up, but your uh, body stays asleep. Oh, okay. Uh, it's sort of halfway between dreaming state and waking state. And a lot of people, at least in, in my experience, I've sensed things that were actually going on in the real world around me while also still have dreaming. So a lot of people, if you, if you look it up, uh, they tend to hallucinate dark figures standing over them or, you know, something is compressing their chest or suffocating them. Uh, 
So I started to have this on a pretty regular basis uh, to the point where, like, I didn't know if I was being haunted. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. So I started to look into dreaming uh, just to sort of get a, get a grip on it. And that's when I discovered lucid dreaming. And then I started to research lucid dreaming and then trying to practice it. And then uh, after I started to come out of my uh, depression by really engrossing myself in the local music scene, yeah. which I can't say enough how much it saved my life, uh, the underground local music scene that was happening in New York City around 2004 to 2007, and the metal scene that's emerged again in the last couple of years as it, had, as it tends to do in cycles, yeah, no, uh, really saved my life and changed my life. And um, I started to write again. And one of the practice methods that I used for writing was um, dreams. I would have different friends of mine uh, give me their dreams, and I would transcribe them into verse form. And then uh, writing about dreams, I was just trying to practice and have enough material to keep writing and get better and stay in the flow of writing and not fall back into writer's block. And then from the dreams, I started writing about people's artwork and going to different galleries. Because, you know, usually you go to galleries and you just sort of like look around and you walk and you stand and stare and you make sort of like cliche observations on like what you think it means. And I mean, I love art. I like art, but I didn't know what I was getting out of it by just how long am I supposed to stand and look at this picture yeah. until whatever I'm going to get out of it hits me. So I started taking my uh, notepad and just transcribing artwork into rhyme form and verse form. And uh, Carlin was one of the people that I eventually met that like, I love her art. I love her work. And I love the stuff she's done for bands and her own stuff. So I had uh, done some material based on her artwork Um and eventually she invited me down to uh, Dreams Were Made for Mortals, which was, um, for as long as I've been writing off and on, it was my first actual public performance rhyming. Came off great, though, man. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. that. See, uh, you seem like you do it regularly. That's why I was like, wow, I wonder how many times you do this, you know? And Yeah, well, that was the thing. I mean, I have a few friends, like close personal friends that that know I've rhymed and other people that I've written about or written for, they know but as far as a, a public format, I never really did it. I mean, for me, it's sort of, keep in mind, after the writer's block, I've only been consistently writing again and getting my bearings about it. I literally had to learn how to do it all over from scratch, sort of like baby steps. And that's been within the past four or five years okay, yeah. consistently. So most substantial amount yeah, of time. Yeah, but really. most rappers, I mean, they start. I didn't start rhyming when I was a teenager till I was about, you know, 15, 16. A lot of rappers that are, like, really good that I was trying to get as good at had been rhyming since they were kids. So yeah. I've really been playing a lot of catch-up this sure. entire time. And uh, so I've really kept it to myself. And also the caliber of lyricism uh, that I attained to based on uh, the stuff that I grew up on. Uh, I have too much respect for it just to do it on an average or subpar level, if I'm going to do it and if I'm going to present it to people and take up their time, yep. I definitely want to do it to the very best of my capabilities. And so I've definitely took, took time uh, to get it to a point where I feel like it was presentable in a fashion that like I would want to take five minutes to watch. Yeah. So no, yeah. it, it seemed very much together. Like I said, it seemed like you've been doing it for years. You know? Yeah, uh, I've been writing for years. I've been recording to myself for years. I just hadn't publicly performed 
Yeah, there's a lot but, to be yeah. said for that, though, because, I mean, uh, you know, some people who aren't familiar with the creative process might think that you sit down, you write a song, and it's done. You know, they don't realize that you got to grind and you have to refine things. And you might write lyrics for a song like 10 times before you're actually satisfied with yeah. it. You know, or you might write a riff for a song and then you have it, it exists somewhere in some random practice based recording. And then, like a year later, you you dig it up again and then you're like, oh, wow, I, I, right. yeah, we'll use this. It didn't fit, it wasn't appropriate at the time. But then time goes by and then you find a place for it. That it's not this linear progression, that it's. It's a lot more fragmented and a lot more. Um, it might take a longer time to develop. Yeah, it's it's a jigsaw. Know? Yeah, it's a exactly. jigsaw puzzle to an extent. And that was the other thing. Uh, for as long as I've been writing, I've uh, been recording, you know, to myself for a few years. And it's one thing to be able to write material. And as you know, with rapping, especially if you're if you're trying to do something that's worthwhile and really creative, there's a lot of syllables involved. At least with what I do. And to be able to pull it off verbally mm-hmm. takes a lot of time and a lot of practice. And just, you know, getting the hang of your own voice and how sure. you want to accentuate everything. I've definitely uh, wanted to take my time with it and get it get it right. I think not performing and not releasing any material publicly was just sort of uh, a time period where I wanted to explore my options and not put out anything that I had to look back on. And look at with regret or wish. No, that's inevitable, though. Yeah, it is. And uh, again, I tend to write things in storyline format. And uh, working on a few different projects that all have their own themes. And some of those stories are still writing themselves. Right. And my actual life. So just sort of everything's been practice up until the premiere that night. And now that I think the, so to speak, the cat's out of the bag... I'm definitely looking forward to actually putting out material and letting people hear what you know. It's been in the works for quite a while. That um, that you had you had an audio track underneath, uh, you know your 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 vocal. Yeah. What uh, where did, did you do that or you know, no? That was actually uh, Rosetta oh, from their oh, Ga- Galilean Satellites okay. album. They had an um, what do you call it? An ambient accompany accompaniment. To that album where it was just sort of drone and sort of a backdrop uh, to that to the actual album. Okay. So I, you know, being that it was an art show, dreams were made for mortals. It's an art show. Uh, I'm rhyming at a metal club. Saint Vitus is primarily a metal club, and I'm doing it in front of an audience that maybe is not as familiar with hip hop, or at least, and also the rhyming and the syllables and all the words. It's very wordy. And I definitely, I didn't want it to go over people's heads. So I wanted, you know, ambiance, but not necessarily music. And mm-hmm. uh, going through, you know, my collection of, you know, samples and different things, that just fit. That track fit. Yeah, it was so, interesting. Man. Shout out thing. to Rosetta. Yeah. And uh, the other thing, it's funny you mentioned you brought them up. Um, speaking of how songs take a while to come together, I had recent, uh, a few years ago, I wrote a piece about few different characters and it just never i wrote the first verse one year i wrote the first verse i mean the second verse the next year and it was taking the longest to like it just never felt right even though the two verses were complete it wasn't finished and it felt like it wasn't finished and it didn't get finished until i saw rosetta's new album cover Mm -hmm. uh the anestet and uh their album cover became the third character that sort of helped me piece that all together so it's funny that you bring up the the background track 
Yeah, yeah. Just to, you know, when you, when you you came here, I was working on some demos for our new record, and uh, just reflecting on that, like that's taking quite a while for us to put together, yeah. and compose, and at least one song we wrote, like, you know, right after we recorded uh, Path to Totality. So that's been like three years. You yeah, know? and then we literally wrote another song. Like about three weeks ago, right? <laughs> so it's taken like yeah. all this time to put together this thing, you know. And and I'm still working on, you know, finishing writing lyrics, which is always the hardest thing to do. And uh, you know, anyone out there who who wants to to get into doing creative work, you know, it's 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 a commitment. You know, it's it's the same. It's not an easy task to sit down and create something that you feel good about. And uh, you know, it's a mission. You know, it's a it's a path. You know, it's like a a lifestyle, you know, just like any other kind of, you know, if you're into CrossFit or like martial arts or whatever, it's like, it's a lifestyle that you have to devote yourself to and, you know, have discipline and like put time into. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's the most satisfying thing about it is to put all this time into something and to have something in your hands at the end of the day that you feel, feel good about, you know? And, And for you, I imagine it was that performance, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, not for nothing, I have to say, uh, to have you and uh, Sean from uh, Hull, you know, two two guys in two bands that, like, I love, you know oh, what I mean? Like, cool. I try to go to all your shows, and uh, you guys were front and center, and uh, to be able to get through it and to see the sort of interest and satisfaction on your faces, not for nothing, like, when I start putting out material, that right there was worth, you know, almost any amount of fans, like... Don't just write material to satis- satisfy yourself. I-, I would say to others, try to attain, you know, a-, a margin of what influenced you to want to be creative. And uh, I mean, for me, more so than to to write or create for my own, you know, for my own sake, I want to be able to to make material that. Luckily, because I'm in New York City, I'm able to make friends with a lot of my favorite bands and artists and rappers and lyricists that I grew up on. I want to be able to make material that they can look at and go, dude, you did a good job with that. You know, it's great. So uh, that's what I attain towards. You know, Sean and I are doing a band together. Yeah, which is, yeah. (laughs) I found that out like two weeks ago and I'm I'm super stoked. Yeah, it's going to be fun, man. You know, we're, um, you know, it's me and Sean and Nick from Hall. And uh, Charlie from Bora and Fade from Batillus, you know, and other things. I mean, Fade's, sure. Fade's a, uh, you know, his output is pretty, pretty substantial. Yeah. You know yeah. I mean, he's done a lot of things. He's, you know, Jarbo, like he's right. done all kinds of Between him and stuff. Josh Lozano, I don't think yeah. there's a local band. Neither one of them has not worked within some capacity. Yeah, yeah. Josh was doing, uh, he did that uh, thing with Cobalt recently. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's cool. It's, I mean, we, uh, actually, I wasn't involved in this. They just cut. Uh, basics for a four song demo um, the drums and the bass are done for a oh, four song wow. demo and I'm gonna uh, probably over the next few weeks be putting the guitar tracks down for you know my parts and whatnot. fantastic but, uh, but yeah it's it's like definitely cool man it's cool to work outside of like what you're normally used to doing and and um, you know it's it's like a doom death rock kind of thing and you yeah. know it's like I'm not doing any vocals I'm just playing guitar and it's it's a fun interesting sort of exploration of uh you know doing things outside of your comfort zone and yeah. All that. yeah which is i think uh the production that you mentioned before what i've been 
part of the reason I haven't also released any material is, I mean, even though I'm a lyricist and I rhyme, I primarily, all my samples are, aren't anything from a hip-hop sort of background or format. Uh, I use samples to make beats out of, and I've never wanted to come off as a rap rock mashup sort of like whatever bullshit you know mm -hmm. what i mean like people can remember from the early 2000s and late 90s yeah i definitely wanted to try to carve out my own thing and have it try to sound as natural and as fitted as possible and uh as far as i know i mean i don't really see too many other hip-hop guys going to the shows that i go to so I've, i mean there are guys that have done it uh by the way check out there's one album in particular um, Necro. He put out oh, an yeah. album called The Prefix for Death. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of his material that's good and great, and I love it, but that one album in particular, I consider a milestone cool. as uh, the first way that someone actually blended, you know, death metal, hip hop, you know, black metal elements all into one album. Um, I, I, th I sort of think of it as my starting point. Um, it came out in 2004 as far as what I'm trying to go for and at least find my own lane in it without you know being a ripoff of what he's already accomplished with that so so you, you were talking about influences and how um you know you wanted to uh produce something that's not an affront to some of your influences so right. so what what back what are some of those influences uh lyrically off the top of my head uh there's a lot i would automatically say uh lewis logic uh is a new york-based guy uh tone deaf Definitely a lot of uh, Necro, Ill Bill, a lot of the earlier psychological record stuff. Uh, swollen members, uh, swollen members. I was huge on. Yeah, um, you sent me. You sent me that a while back. Yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, shout out yeah. to ID and Creative Juices Music. Uh, he's one of my favorite producers, lyricist. Period. Uh, this guy that does everything. Homeboy Sandman's another great local artist. Uh, metal. I mean. I mean, it's too much to name. There's so many off the top of my head. What about Immortal Technique? Uh, Immortal Technique, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can't believe I didn't rattle yeah, him off man. the top that, of my head. I, I like Immortal Technique a yeah. lot, man. I've been, I've been checking out some of the Viper Records stuff. Yeah, yeah. Diabolic. Shout out to Diabolic. Yeah. Uh, Akir. That whole, just the whole... Here's the thing that, that sort of uh, turns my cranks in hip-hop. There's a lot of amazing, original, talented, poignant artists, really poignant, that touch on every sort of subject. I tell people, for whatever kind of metal or hip-hop you're into, whatever kind of other music you're into, there's a lyricist that can suit your needs or suit your interest. It's just that on a mainstream level, that stuff is marginalized and it's almost sort of treated as it doesn't exist. You're not going to hear it on the radio. You're not going to see it on TV. And for me, it bothers me because a lot of the hip hop that is portrayed in the media or on a, on a mass scale, not only does it betray hip hop poorly, it betrays the communities and the people that that culture comes from poorly, uh, almost to an extent that like, it's embarrassing. The few times a year where I do come across something on the radio or if I'm in a situation where I have no choice or I do see something on TV and I see some of like the bigger artists that are more famous, I, I almost dread the idea of like 
people who aren't aware of other kinds of hip hop, what they must think of like the communities and the artists and the culture as a whole, because uh, it is the dominant culture across the world as far as commercial ability and the revenue that it brings in and the, the impact that it has on society and fashion. And yet for the most part on a major scale, it's only the buffoons that seem to get any sort of lighter attention. And it's just not, it's not true as far as a whole and what else is out there. So I tend to agree with that, you know, cause I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you. So, I mean, I, I definitely have been exposed to like the hip hop from the eighties, you know, right. I mean? like run DMC and like, you know, public enemy. And I remember there being like a social consciousness and then suddenly everything just disappeared because I feel like hip hop got to a certain commercial status and then they just turned to became in this money machine. Yeah. You know, and then I, I couldn't, I wouldn't believe that people who artists who were paying attention to social issues disappeared, but maybe the spotlight had been turned onto people who would just end up making more money for corporations as right. opposed to doing something that might be good for their community or, doing some kind of more educated uh, you know, commentary on things. Right, and I think not so much even educated commentary. I think back in the day, hip-hop, there was variety. There was room if you wanted to listen to socially conscious music. Yeah. You had that guy, but then you had Wu-Tang, but then right. you had... There, there was a lot of... You, gotta, you know, there was a lot of different artists of all different... You know, hip-hop... It's a culture, but there are many genres. Yeah, just like with, metal. Just like and, metal. Yeah, there are many genres within that culture. And I think before it became this major global you know, money machine, before the corporations figured out what to do with it, that variety was just out there in sort of a free-for-all format. And you could sort of pick and choose, whereas nowadays you're either like a cream puff or you're a partier or you're a gangster, and there's not much room in between, you know, yeah. when you when you look at Wu Tang, I think the thing that made them so important and vital is that between those nine main members, they had the entire spectrum in between. If you wanted to be educated, you could be educated. If you wanted to listen to like crazy wall out, like gangster punch you in the face shit, yeah, yeah. they had that too. They had everything. You they could rap about the projects. They could rap about the cosmos. They touched on everything. I feel like. That group was sort of a a microcosm and a macrocosm of the hip hop uh, that I grew up on and the the environment that it came from. It wasn't this sort of your either or sort of thing, you know. Yeah, I, I loved Wu Tang. Like you know, when, when they when I first got became aware of them was like maybe ninety seven somewhere around there. Right. And uh, you know, I was working up and I lived in Boston at the time, and I was working at the Newberry Comics warehouse, and uh, you know, that was like. Uh, all day musical, yeah. you know, experiment. Like there's, you know, people were actually that whole trip of working there was pretty interesting because it was like me, Aaron Harris, who was in, you know, went on to be in ISIS and Cliff, who was in ISIS and Mike Gallagher, who was in ISIS yeah. and like, <laughs> a couple of dudes from like uh, Blood for Blood work there. Wow. Um, you know, it's just like, it's funny, like all these, you know, I think everyone that played music in Boston at one point worked at the warehouse or, <laughs> or at one of the stores. But yeah. The warehouse was like its own thing, man. And there was always like, you know, where, where the, um, you know, the shipping and receiving was, there was a boom box there, you know, there was like a boom box inside and there was like always this like 
cacophony of different music going on. And uh, I remember when uh, Wu-Tang, like, first, you know, started getting noticed by people, we would crank that stuff in the warehouse. And I was like, and it really took to it right away. But more more because of the, the thuggy, thuggish elements. It was like, initially, that's what kind of attracted me to it. Like, the sort right. of, like, you know, derelict element to their music. Right. But, but th- that was the great thing about them. I mean, you consider guys from the projects of Staten Island, which is sort of a no man's land yeah. to the rest of New York City, and they were influenced by you know martial arts movie, yep. by philosophy, by comic books. Yeah. It was everything that like for me. I mean, I grew up personally bust around going to school in New mm-hmm. York City, and I got to spend time with different people from different neighborhoods, and it sort of exposed me that like there are no boundaries to where your mind or where your creativity can go if you're open to explore, especially in New York City where it's like, you know, any given neighborhood or any given 20 blocks, you could walk past 100 worlds. Who knows what's going, you know, between the East Village or Union Square, just Manhattan in general, for uh, luckily, for whatever kind of world you're interested in, it's here. That's true. And sort of a group like Wu-Tang definitely made me aware that, like, okay, you're raised on what you're raised on, and you sort of come from, you know, whatever environments but you're exposed to. But look out. You know, find out what's going on in Europe. Find out what's going on in Asia. Find out what's going on elsewhere where you can sort of, you know, learn. Yeah. And be inspired for the most part. It doesn't have to be... You know any particular one thing that you're interested in? The the references to comic books and you know martial arts movies and you know that that was what really endeared me to Wu Tang because like you know that that first thuggish like element was like yeah, yeah you know you know ra- you know talking about like you know shooting people or whatever yeah. <laughs> you know that's the kind it of was stuff, a, the, fun the stuff, whole thing know? was so fascinating just because of like the the you know them combining the street knowledge yeah. with sort of cosmic. And also martial arts philosophy. Yeah. Uh, if anybody look up the Wu Tang Manual, it's sort of like a book that basically brings together all of their influences from this sh- and how they applied uh, their philosophy from martial arts and just sort of com- cosmic numerology and all that oh, stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. How they applied it all not all, to the music business and also to their dealings in the streets. When they were in that world, and it sort of gives you like a blueprint to how to, you know, come together with your friends and mastermind some shit. Yeah. It's it's really like amazing, and uh, I can't say enough about that but, collective. But also the RZA is like, I think he's a genius producer oh, yeah. too. Yeah. You know, he's, I would love to see a collaboration between Justin Broderick and the, and the RZA. Wow. Like that, wow. Like, yeah. Honestly, I think yeah. about this that shit be... all the time. Like I think about like how massive that would be. Yeah. You know, Justin Broderick's like a huge, you know, hip hop, dance yeah. music, you know, grime fan. I she just did a remix for Colt Luna ah. um for their new record. It's on their record Vertical Two that just came out. Okay. I've been listening to on repeat for days on end. Okay. It's amazing. Yeah, I think the track is called Vicarious uh, Redemption, if you guys want to look into that. Yeah. Cool. It's amazing. Yeah. Can you imagine though how how badass that would be? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but uh, also a cool Keith that I was really into, you know, like even back to like the ultra magnetic. Right, and, and, and here's you know, a, he's Dean. another guy. Like, I'm sometimes I think I'm more of a f- 
fa- there's some artists that I'm more of a fan of their acumen and uh, and their their exploration rather than their music specifically. And Cool Keith was just one of those characters where it's like this guy does whatever he wants, and it's take it or leave it. And just to see, like, he had all these other characters that he would make up and alter egos, and it was like watching a, a, a comic book character come to life on an album to a certain extent. So we, we, were, talk, we were talking about the dream world a little bit yeah. earlier and uh, depression and all this sort of stuff and how your depression sort of halted a lot of your creative energy. You know? Right. And, and that's the thing, man. Like, you know, there's all these different levels of depression. You know, some people are like, I'm feeling depressed today, you know. Yeah. And like, but then there's like the real deal, like yeah. depression. Like which, jump out the window depression. Yeah, where yeah. you feel the heaviness of everything and you can't get anything done and you don't eat and you just feel physically at a loss. Right. You know? And I, I experienced something like that um, a couple of years ago. Not Maybe not to the extent like, you know, that you might have experienced it. But, you know, I was stuck in a situation that was like really like I felt like there was no way out of it, you know, right. I mean? and, and I was, I found myself, uh, you know, not wanting to train, not feeling very productive, not wanting to do any kind of, you know, band stuff with the band or, you know, sleeping a lot and all this sort of stuff. And physically I felt at a disadvantage, you know what I mean? And then I just started reading articles about depression and then it named every single thing I was going yeah. through. And that the knowledge of that, the knowledge that recognizing I was actually, your symptoms and that they are symptoms that that almost that not almost that in and of itself was enough to kind of snap me out of the whole right. thing. Like, OK, this is I'm not some special case that's yeah. know, withering, you know, irredeemable. And, yeah. Yeah. So I, I just sort of, you know, took all that in and was able to pull pull myself out of it. You know what I mean? But. Like, you know, what what was it like for you? Like, what was your experience with depression? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, for me, uh, I'm going to growing up, I think for me, it was a gradual thing from the time I was a, you know, a kid. Uh, I definitely I went through some stuff as a kid that I think planted the seeds of it. And, uh, you know, as a kid, you don't really know how to adjust to those sort of things. You just sort of go on with the next day and the next day and the year next and, the, you know, the year after that just sort of trying to get through life and keep on keeping on and you, you know, and then one day you wake up and the weight of all that accumulation that's been building for years and years is suddenly unbearable. And it, you know, it wasn't, how do I say, it wasn't an overnight thing that you sort of realized, but like when it settled in, it was so heavy, you know? And, uh, I mean, luckily, you know, through music and comedy, for sure. I mean, depression's probably the reason that I gravitated towards comedy. Uh, you know, guys like George Carlin and Bill Hicks. And when I started to see the world differently when yeah. I was a kid, and I started to realize, like, this nothing makes sense as a whole. Like, none of this. And it goes against everything you're sort of being taught at school or at home or that you're supposed to believe in. That in and of itself was, like, hugely depressing growing up the fact that like the way you see things and the way things clearly are isn't the way the rest of the the rest of the world is telling you or the news or the media is telling you that that it is what what you see with your own two eyes there's a very big distinction between what the media portrays and what society portrays and how you should feel and be thinking about life and i think for me comedy and music definitely help 
at least be sort of a cold comfort. I mean, I listen to, I'm a pretty dreadful guy to a certain extent. And I always gravitated <laughs> towards the music and comedy that uh, reflected that. And that was cathartic about it. Um, coming out of it, like you said, reading about your symptoms, uh, I've never really been medicated yeah. for any of my mm -hmm. depression. It was simply based in sort of, you know, a lot of trial and error, uh, socially, a lot of trial and error psychologically, and just sort of, uh, you should look up the term cognitive behavioral therapy, okay, which is sort of just recognizing your own symptoms and, and writing about it, even if it's not in a creative form. When you can put down your thoughts on paper yeah. and sort of read them back to yourselves, read it back to yourself, it definitely helps give you a scope of what you're going through rather than just having it spin around your head. Yeah, that that was, I mean, you know, fortunately for me, I've always, you know, I'm an everyday journal, journal writer. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, you know. Like and I just get, to get it out of you, yeah. even if it's just on paper, it's not just, you know, conundruming in your head. Yeah. Just it's to, like a huge part of it. I definitely, I read, uh, I read some books on psychology, I did uh, research. I mean, one of the things that helped me, oddly enough, is uh, I had a keen interest in serial killers. Oh, yeah, dude. dude look at my book. Yeah. Show, man. It's like, I had a God, keen no. interest in serial killers and just sort of their symptoms. And I mean, I'm nothing like a serial killer, but yeah. I think the symptoms that they go through on a maximized level, most people go through on some sort of minimized level. And I think to a certain extent, all humans mm -hmm. in some sense or another we're we're dealing with some sort of syndrome whether it's you know uh destructive or not we're all dealing with some sort of syndrome that w most of us don't even realize we're going through whether it's you know racially or socially or you know just in society yeah and i think sort of knowing yourself and uh being able to look in the mirror and assess yourself autonomously you know, is, is a big part. And um, I can't stress enough exercise. Oh, yeah. Well, exercising yeah. a physical regimen mm -hmm. has done more for me. And again, I'm not against medication. I'm saying in my own case, I was able to get through my issues without. Uh, I think some people definitely require and need medication and it can be a great help to them. But for me, this do sort of a cognitive awareness and discipline and uh, being honest with myself and, and a lot of exercise. and um, What kind of exercise stuff do you do? I mean, like... for me, it's just uh, I do – I use a wheelchair. Uh, I should probably mention at this point that I have CP, uh, okay. cerebral palsy. Uh, I walk for the most part, but for long distances, I use a chair. So that's sort of um, – I do long-distance pushing. Okay. Uh, sort of the same way a runner would do. Right. Uh, certain weeks, I may do anywhere from 20 to 30 miles. Wow, really? Yeah, I, you definitely build up to that. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not an sounds, overnight I thing. I do that. Yeah, you know? so, uh, I mean, you consider average person might run five miles a day or more, so it's about the same, but uh, that alone just helps, you know, whatever you're going through, exercising it, getting out of your system, transforming that energy. I mean, energy is going to be there. Uh, whether it's bad or good, especially if it's bad, it's not going to go anywhere. And, you know, you have to transform it. You have to, you know, um, mutate it yeah. to, to your to your benefit. And I find that, you know, through music and exercise and physical exertion, whether it's yoga mm -hmm. or it's, you know, doing miles or whether it's lifting with, 
lifting weights, right. transforming that energy, I think is uh, invaluable. Yeah. As far as uh, psychological and physical well-being. Well, the med- med- yeah, medication, man, that's like, uh, you know, definitely there are people who clinically require to have some sort of medications, but I believe that a lot of people are looking mainly for a sort of solution that they could probably find somewhere else. Right. You know, be it like lifestyle change or nutritional changes. Because, I mean, you know, there's the whole like idea that's the whole gluten-free paleo thing where, you know, you're... Gluten apparently makes people depressed at some point. You know? <laughs> seriously, like that, like the way you, right. your your intestinal, like the the sort of flora inside your intestines dictates your mood a lot, you know, right. and that kind of thing. So I mean, there's, you know, there's even even adjustments in, you could be making in your life like that, as opposed to taking, you know, some sort of antidepressant or something. Yeah, I mean, dude, I try to do. Uh, if if I'm home or I'm not doing much, just try to do hourly push-ups. You know, if you get stuck on something, whether you're engineering or you're writing, just drop down and do a couple of push-ups. You'd be amazed at how that can sort of re- regenerate your, your will to complete whatever it is you're working on. Well, yeah, I'm of the opinion that, you know, the sort of... Uh grind that you get from from doing some kind of physical you know goals you know like for me it was like you know i used to wrestle i played football you know i did martial arts you know jujitsu you know muay thai that kind of thing like having some sort of physical obstacle to overcome like all of that helps you in the 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 non-physical things in your life oh yeah you know like i did this uh project uh an audiobook project uh, several months ago and um, it was brutal. Like I was working. I remember you job. talking about that yeah, on a previous horrible. podcast. Yeah, yeah. It was, I was doing this thing. Like I was working my full time job. And I was coming home, and I was just. I had X amount of hours to do every night to hit this like deadline. Mind numbing. And I, yeah. it was boring. It was like the worst <laughs> thing I've ever done in my life. You know, I, and uh, you know, it was nice because I, I was able to you take that money I made and pay off my van. So that was great. You know, right. but but the thing was, it's I had this absolute quota of every evening of how many pages I had to get through to hit this deadline exactly on the date that it was due. Right. I couldn't slack at all. Yeah. Now, had I not wrestled as a kid, I think I probably <laughs> would have never been able to, like, to accomplish this. Thing. Right. The discipline. Of yeah, it. Just, yeah. Just the way the the ability to push through like limitations like that, you know, and I think that that's an important thing, you know, just, to put your body through some kind of physical travail when you, know? you don't when you when you don't want to do it and when you don't think you can do it having done it before uh helps you know that like i can get through this and i need to get through this yeah yeah you know because you know, i wanted to give up man there were so many times i'm like you know what i'm just gonna email these motherfuckers yeah. and be like, Look, you know, I, I can't get someone else to do it right. don't call me again but you know i didn't want to let anyone down either right. that's the thing it's i agreed to do it it wasn't even about the money at that point. It was just like, I said I would do it, and I'm going to get it done. And it's just, to not do it, I don't think I would have been able to really live with myself. Yeah. You know, because I, like I like to follow through. I like to complete things, you know? Right. And I think that, even that ability to do that is, uh, you know, I relate that to some sort of physical training as well. I mean, to, to make it through, you know, an hour Muay Thai class or to, 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 to last five rounds, you know, rolling jiu-jitsu or like... Any of those things, you complete it, and then when you're done, you have a feeling of satisfaction. Yeah, which I think for me, I mean, the body is an instrument. 
you know, um, I think I don't think most people realize that about themselves and their own physical being. But the body is an instrument, and you can get so much out of it rather than just your everyday practical use and the things that it'll do for you. Um, you know, I think for your soul, if you believe in that sort of thing, or just your own mental well-being, uh, you should definitely. And this is going to sound kind of funny. Play with your instrument to some extent, yeah. or utilize your instrument in other ways other than just commuting. Yeah, definitely. Or sitting in front of a computer all day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's definitely physiological changes that undergo your your body undergoes when you don't use it. You know, and sure. it's men, you know, and they get to be a certain age. If they don't, if they're not exercising that fight or flight, you know, activity, their testosterone levels start dropping <laughs> down. And like, yeah. you know, I mean, I work in an office primarily. Right. You know what I mean? And, and like, I remember one day I started reading about all this stuff because you know I'm always looking at ways to improve. You know, right. and like, you know, okay, if I eat this type of food, like I might be able to do this kind of stuff, and it might help me here and there. And I started reading about testosterone, you know, and I was like, you know, checking out like these articles about it and they're like you know the appearance of someone who has low testosterone you know and it's like <laughs> soft and rounded and you know and i started looking around the office and i was just like these, these fucking yeah right here, <laughs> fucking he's lard like, in the corner yeah he's yeah. like he's like he's not fat but he's like just seems soft shoulderless yeah yeah like round his, his round face and like and it's not like he's fat. That's the thing. It's just like yeah, he, he just, just look, doesn't look. He doesn't look very present within yeah, himself. Yeah, he looked. Yeah. Uh, he just doesn't look right. He doesn't right. look like he. Sh- and he was, yeah, probably like thirty eight, thirty nine. Like not even like really, you know, super old. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, I'm like this guy could make just a couple of adjustments in his life, and he probably would probably feel better, and probably work a lot harder. Yeah, he'd probably be able to like focus better and like because that's the other thing about testosterone too i mean this is like a you know pharmaceutical ad here you know, right. but, like, <laughs> but uh you know not it's you know you think of testosterone and you're like yeah you know this guy like you know like you know like having sex with women and like you know like you know lifting weights and all this other stuff but really it's your ability to complete projects your ability to focus and all that kind of to, stuff like and just function at a, at a, at a high level yeah and I know coming back to uh, my condition with dealing with CP, you sort of get the point that like as you get older, you know, it's it's a, it's an uphill battle, tumbling backwards and down to yeah. a certain. That's for anybody, for whether you yeah. have a condition or not. Yeah. And I think definitely dealing with my condition makes me more keen and aware that like, dude, you gotta you know keep try to keep tip top. Yeah. Or at least you know just don't. Don't tumble backwards, right? To a certain extent, don't you know? Don't don't get lost in you know yourself. So, I want to definitely talk about this whole dream world thing, man. Okay, yeah. Like that's like you know when you mentioned that, that definitely hit something with me right. too. You know, I mean, I, I I'm not one of those guys who remembers their dreams. You know right. what I mean? Like occasionally, there was periods in my life where I would dream very vividly and I would remember them. Right. But the last several years, I go to bed, I wake up. And that's it. <laughs> uh, I would say that, uh, and this is going to sound sort of silly coming from me. I actually don't remember. I don't care to remember a lot of my dreams. And I don't write. I primarily write about other people's dreams. Okay. And people who send me theirs. Not that I'm not interested in mine. But to do it, it's something you really have to be. I mean, once in a while, you can remember it and it'll stick with you. But for the most part, most dreams are lost if you don't recount them or write them down as soon as you wake up. 
if I if I really want to stick to it, I have to keep a notepad right next to my bed. Yeah, and as soon as I wake up, you know, that's if I don't have to like run to the bathroom first. Yeah, yeah. or whatever, you know. Uh, what what interested me about writing about other people's dreams for the most part is one, uh, the conversations that you get to have mm-hmm. and the things that come up. People are way more likely to give you personal details about their lives yeah. if they're telling you through the format of their dream than they would be inclined to divulge just an average conversation. Sure, I could see that. Yeah. Uh, that was really interesting to me, just sort of like the very sort of deep personal details that people were willing to explain under the guise of a dream. And also just, uh, you start the more dreams I I wrote about, I started to notice uh, the correlations of that. A lot of people dream about similar things one way or another. Uh, I had one occasion, and this is what really made me stick to the point is where two of my friends that live in different States don't know each other from a hole in the wall had an overlapping dream. One told me about it one night and then the other messaged me the next afternoon and their dreams were pretty much like the same setting, which I thought was like incredibly, one, it's a coincidence, but I thought it was incredibly weird and he just sort of, uh, I don't know how much I believe in a sort of cosmic synchronicity to things. I I definitely, to some extent, but as far as between fate and coincidence on an everyday basis, I tend to try to be a skeptic. But it's also fun to believe, it's more fun to believe that certain things could be connected. And that was one particular instance where I thought to myself, I don't know what I'm onto here, but I'm definitely onto something. And also, I find writing about other people's dreams, it brings up things in my own life or in my own subconscious that I might not have pinpointed otherwise. Uh, so it's been not only relevatory about them, it's done the same for me as far as writing about something in their dreams will bring up something from my childhood or my past or remind me of another dream that I can then incorporate in, uh, you know, when, when you were lucid, when you were lucid dreaming, like your your physical body was uh, was still sleeping, basically, right? And, yeah, uh, and well, that's during sleep paralysis, okay, which sleep is paralysis. sort of a it's one form of lucid dreaming. For the most part, uh, the primary form of lucid dreaming is when you're in a dream state, right? And you're aware. Okay, you're aware that you're dreaming. Uh, there are techniques that you can sort of train yourself to uh, become aware more often and more easily. Uh, I'll just give one example. There's a light light switch technique. Okay. That uh, if you're dreaming, whether the light's on or off, in dreams, it, if you flick the switch, it won't change ah. for whatever. And I don't know the psychological science behind that, but let's say you come into the room and the light's on and you try to switch it off, it won't. Or if a light's off and you try to turn it on, it won't go on. Wow. So you're, you're probably familiar with Carl Jung and all his... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, because, like, yeah. you know Jacqueline, my, my girlfriend. Oh, right? yeah. Jacqueline, yeah. she's... Uh, this is, like, a fascination of hers as well, and she's right. working on putting together a documentary about, you know, lucid dreaming and Carl right. Jung and all this sort of stuff. And actually, she wants to talk to you about this stuff at some yeah, point. We, yeah, we had spoken yeah. briefly about it. Yeah. That dreams are made for mortals. Right. Yeah. Um, do you have any theories or kind of... Um, hypotheses about consciousness and you know whether or not it's connected to the physical 
or if it's something that exists outside of the physical uh, manifestation. You know, because dreaming to me is yeah. like a, a mystery. Well, one, yeah, I think it's. I'm surprised that not that not more study. The fact that we go to bed and have movies in our heads, yeah, about either things that directly relate to our lives or things that like seem to come out of nowhere. I'm sure you've had dreams where you wake up and you're just like, "What the fuck was that about?" Yeah, and I think. Uh, the key to our waking lives, as far as, again, this is going back to cognitive behavioral ther- uh, therapy, is being aware and sort of deciphering our dreams would be such a great help to your waking life because that's where the seeds of who we are are planted or what's going on in our lives. That's where it all comes comes together, whether it's in a juxtaposed sort of way or in a very direct, you know, pinpointed sort of way. I think if we if we could pay attention more to our dreams, it'll help give us some insight into our emotions and our our own train of thought in in in, in regular life that I think not enough people pay attention to that my, I myself don't pay attention to because I it's more fun for me to write about other people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah to a certain extent like I sort of not that I have myself completely figured out, but I generally know what's going on with me and the writing aspect of it. I, I like somebody giving me something that they can't make sense of Yeah, and me trying to piece it together and giving it back to them. I right. sort of consider it a, a subconscious collaboration to a certain extent. Um, as far as the outer consciousness, uh, inner consciousness thing with dreaming and I'm, I consider myself a spiritual person. Right. Not necessarily a re- a religious person. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know where I draw the line between where I think our bodies begin and our souls end, or how you would define the soul. But I definitely feel attuned to the supernatural to a certain extent, and I think our dreams, especially if you've ever had like a relative or or someone that um, passed away. And they appear to you in your dreams. And yeah, that might be yourself projecting that image of them and what they might say. But there have been other times when um, the day my grandma died earlier this year, you know, I didn't necessarily know she was getting ready to go. And, uh, you know, she when she passed away, like I felt like she came to me. And then when I woke up an hour later, I got the news and my grandma hadn't appeared in any of my dreams since I can't even remember when, you know what I mean? But that specific day at that specific time, I felt like she was there and I heard her voice. That That's very weird thing. You know, I had another uh, situation going back to the suspension thing. Uh-huh. A few days before I suspended for the first time, one of my dearest friends growing up uh, contacted me and she has no connection to my other suspension friends or that community, she simply said, I I had a dream that you were having some sort of procedure and I was coming to see you and make sure you're okay. And I just wanted to make sure everything was good with you. And I wrote her back like, dude, I literally just decided a few days ago that like I was going to suspend, you know. Uh, so there are weird coincidences that I wouldn't even feel comfortable calling coincidences, yeah. but I'm not so kooky. Uh-huh. As I don't have any proof that it's a factual connection. Yeah. But I think we've all lived through moments where it's like 
that's uncanny. Like, that's too weird to just chalk up to coincidence. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, you know. It's like, you can't prove it one way or the other. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I, it's it's hard to not, you know, I mean, I, I never, I mean, when I was, I went through a large portion of my life being very materialist as far as, you know, this is the this is the world right here. This is it. Yeah. You know, our consciousness begins and ends with our lives. Right. But as I go through life and I experience things differently, I feel like it's more of, I don't know if I necessarily believe or disbelieve anything. I just, I'm comfortable to say that I don't know. Yeah, I'm an I don't know guy. Yeah. And I'm open to, uh, I'm open to anything. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, I'm a skeptic, but I also like to live in uh, the idea of what if. Totally, me too. I'm a what if guy, and I'm yeah. not. I'm not opposed. I mean, I think whether you believe or not, for me, it's just more fun to think of connections and coincidences, and you know, who knows? You know, a lot of people that I write about, uh, especially lately, I've been meeting them by completely random chance, where two or three things could have went differently with timing, and we wouldn't have intercepted at that exact moment at that. Exact street where we crossed, where we might have not crossed paths otherwise. Uh, and writing about dreams and writing about other people. Um, and when I say people, uh, I should probably say most of the people I write about, I consider muses mm-hmm. for the most part. They're all women. Okay. Uh, one, there's a beauty aspect to that. Yeah, yeah, and right. then also, there's the idea that they're willing to divulge more. I find they're willing to share more. They're they're willing to be more personal. Yeah, about what what they share. So and um, yeah, the ones there's definitely like the male the male ego is you know gets in the way gets in the way and you yeah. got to be like you know that yeah. this armor. I don't want to dig that hard. Yeah, totally. When I can just get someone who's like, yeah, sure, I'll tell you about all this. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, so the muses I write about, and at this point there there are dozens. Yeah, <laughs> it's become a more or less a pathological things, but the ones I've been meeting recently have almost been completely by just random, almost serendipitous occasions. So I, I like to live in the world that like dots are connecting, whether you realize it or not. Even if you can't prove it, things end up coming full circle regardless. Well, one of the other things I like to think about too is the fact that, um, you know, like a couple hundred years ago, you know, there was this uh, Newtonian physics was thinking oh yeah we've got it all figured out and um yeah we've got it all figured out pretty much now you know and he was talking about newtonian physics like he yeah. got the whole you know every, the whole trip done yeah <laughs> and we know that that's not true we know that like you know i can't remember the guy's name i wish i remember the physicist's name but you know then einstein comes along with his theory of relativity and he's like all right yeah newtonian physics that works great if you're trying to build a bridge or, you know, right. heat water or something like that. You know, boil water, make steam. The world of Newton. Yeah. That he's your man. But if you're tra- traveling, you know, cosmic distances and tracking light particle movement, you know, then you need some other model to talk about that yeah. kind of stuff, you know. And I think that, like, you know, it's, it's really... Uh, you know, irrational for, for humans to believe that they have as much figured out about oh, the universe not as they all. think yeah. they do. You know? well, one of the thing about the universe is, is that as far as we know, it's endless. Like, outer space, 
we don't know a smidgen. And here's the thing. We don't see electricity. Right. It functions around us yeah. all the time. That's one of the few elements that, uh, we, that we're aware of and that we're willing to accept. I tend to think of things, again, I'm a spiritual person, not a religious person. Can you imagine the other elements that might be functioning around us at all times as far as the interconnectivity of people that we can't even fathom yet, much less have looked into studying yeah. or trying to correlate and connect dots? You well, know? there's even like you know dark matter, which apparently that makes up the majority of matter and dark forces. That actually is most of what reality is, yeah. is cons- consists of, and we can't even perceive any of that stuff. Right. You know, so how, I mean, how can you really, in the human perception of things, you know, sort of pretend like you know as much as yeah, you do? Yeah, and for as much as you think you know. And as much as you can be knowledgeable about, you're, you're probably barely scratching the surface. I mean, I just look at music as as one example. I tend to think most genres, the the next generation is every four or five years. Yeah. You know, whether you're going back to like Slayer and Metallica or moving up to like Mastodon and then the bands that are coming after then now, there's constant progression and the things that you thought were the greatest things and that you thought, like, how is anybody going to top this? And for as much as certain albums and certain artists are timeless, there's all there's always new places to go with things. And I sort of think on whether it's music or whether you're talking about spirituality, mm-hmm. there's always room for more progression if you're willing to seek it out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny to talk about music. We just had this discussion about drummers and... Uh extreme music you know and i remember when uh when slayer was around you know what well, i mean they're still around but when they first yeah. when i first got into slayer you know we thought pete's uh not pete's out of all um dave lombardo yeah <laughs> and here's the thing yeah. like i knew it but i didn't want yeah. to say it and get it wrong no, and be cool, a tool yeah. <laughs> when dave lombardo yeah. was like we, everyone was like oh my god dave lombardo you know he's yeah. like the fastest most intense you know extreme drummer right. ever and that's what we could fathom then yeah 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 but now there's guys like you know who are playing stuff way beyond that like all these death metal drummers right. who are like you know like bands like origin that are playing stuff that's like you know, completely incomprehensible, you know. <laughs> now, and then there's going to be guys after them that yeah. are going to be, like, you know, doing other, even more far-out shit than that, you know. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Death metal is always, like, one of those genres of music where it's, you can always, uh, you know, count on those guys as far as musicianship. To push the limits. To push the yeah. limits, yeah. Which is sort of like, which always sort of getting, going back into the lyricism thing. Uh the average person can't differentiate. I, guess, I mean, I guess you could, but the average person can't differentiate the difference between a rapper and a lyricist, as someone who is technically putting the syllables together and, you know, their storytelling and the ways that they present their words and their lyrics. You see that progress every four or five years and me trying to catch up and also find my own niche at it. Uh, it can be daunting, but it's it's also satisfying, right? You know, when when you feel like you you've captured something, and if anything, I would really like the one thing I would wish is that like people, 
and this is probably never going to happen, could just have more clarity on like what you see on TV and radio isn't doesn't even scratch the surface of what this culture and what this art form is capable of doing. I mean, I even I think about like a lot of the bands I listen to, especially right now, I feel like we're living in a really special time in New York City where uh, there are certain bands that are like rising, you know, whether it's Tombs or it's Hull or it's Mortals or Godmaker. Awesome God new band. Maker, I haven't heard them. Oh, they're, they're fantastic. Huh. It's uh, Pete from Clean Teeth. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's cool. his new band. That they only started playing this past summer. And just to see like between the Acheron and St. Vitus opening up, mm-hmm. now bands have a, a vet homes yeah. to where they can play as much as they want and do shows with all their friends. You know, because like in hardcore, like in, you know, local metal scene, scenes, they die. They die and then they rise again. Right now, we're living in a really pivotal time locally where things are rising and it's really inspiring. And the local hip hop scene's kind of like faded off for the time being and being able to go to metal shows and still get that inspiration and still like be able to leave with that energy that whether you're writing lyrics or playing guitar, you know, you have that push creatively to like, that was awesome. I want to go do something awesome. Yeah. After seeing that, you know, that's one of the things I feel fortunate, like, you know, being involved in like underground, you know, metal, like there exists a commercial mainstream world, obviously yeah. where there are bands like, you know, you know, Limp Bizkit or whatever, right. you know, or like tool, you know, I like tool, but they're a massive commercial. Yeah. Band, you know, and people can say, okay, cool. There's there's this band Tool, you know. There's there's Metallica and whatever. Right. And but there also is like this inversion of that world, which is like the underground scene. Right. You know? Which I find the most endearing thing about metal, at least in the underground in metal, the best tend to rise to the top, and they get to tour and they get the recognition. There's not many metal bands that are great that I sit there and I get pissed because like so many more people should know about them. I mean, granted there are a lot of bands that should be getting bigger, Mm -hmm. but like tombs, for example, you guys got a lot of excellent recognition and accolades off that last album. And you guys aren't like a massive band. You know what I mean? You're not selling out major, major venues, but for the most part, you have the notoriety and you can tour yeah. and you can, you know what I mean? Like sustain off of you yeah, know, I mean, your there's, music. You know, there, there's like a, a feeling of accomplishment doing the band. Definitely. Yeah. You know? Um, but yeah, I, I see, you know, I see what you're saying. I Whereas in hip hop, I was going to ask you the same question. It's, about it's not, I mean, there, there are certain underground artists that, that get to that level, but I feel like, again, people got to consider metal. It's infrastructure has been nurtured for decades. Yeah. It's probably at least the underground circuit and network between labels and bands and people with zines and the way the music gets out there and the way it's shared is probably 10 to 15 years ahead of where the underground hip-hop scene is. So for me at least, culturally, it's almost as if I, as I, I kind of think of like metals in a, underground metal is in sort of a just, almost fair sort of world Mm -hmm. whereas like underground hip-hop as opposed to the mainstream is this sort of like alternate universe of like how the fuck could it actually be this way whereas metal you see like in an ideal world great bands get the tour 
Yeah. Great bands you know, get to go to Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. The musicians get to sell merchandise and, you know, make a little something off their music. But for the most part, it's the notoriety and the appreciation from fans that's really there. And there's a little bit of that in underground hip-hop. So that, that's but, what I was going to ask you. Yeah. I, I don't know anything about I mean, I know some artists. But yeah, not... like a guy like Immortal Technique, right? Yeah, okay. He can tour bands like Atmosphere, Jedi Mind Tricks. They're big touring artists. But there may be, you know, 20 or 25 underground hip-hop artists that can tour and live off their music and have the notoriety that they should. But in metal, there's maybe 100, yeah. if not 200 or more that can all do that. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you, you can definitely. I mean, it, just just the ability to tour is something that's within everyone's grasp, really. Right. I mean, because there's there's a circuit of promoters, know, promoters and venues and bands, exactly. And, and the fact that like bands are actually willing to sometimes take less money yep. to put together a better package, mm-hmm. where I feel is like uh, hip hop artists are a little fucking greedy. Okay. You know what I mean, like. Very a lot of hip hop artists. It'll be like the main guy, and then his crew of rappers that he, you know, collabs with. Rather than taking like, I mean, Rock the Bells do it, but even that, like, that was such a weird thing where it's like it started out with like the best of the best in the underground, and then next thing you know, like they're mixing it with more mainstream artists, mm-hmm. and now like the best of the best of the underground who would have been headlining are now on some B or C fucking stage, right? So where it's like weird, I don't know. But so like where like an underground hip hop artist yeah. in New York City, what what kind of venue would that would that show happen at? At this point, dude, I don't even like. I mean, there was definitely more. Like, there's no Saint Vitus or Acheron right, I guess that's a question. of yeah. underground hip hop. Okay, that really doesn't exist. I mean, back in the day, SOBs used to put on a lot of great shows. Uh I booked at CBGB's the last year that they were closed. I mean, they put on some great hip-hop shows. I mean, there used to be sort of a... Fat Beats was a record store. Okay. Oh, I miss record stores so much. Dude, tell me about it. Most of my friendships, whether it was metal or hip-hop, were me. You could just be at a store and you see a guy checking out the same music as you. A conversation starts. Next thing you know, you make a friend. You see each other at shows. Ten years later, you have a friendship that started... From standing next to a vinyl or a CD rack, yeah, totally, which man. doesn't happen anymore. Wow. Uh, Fat Beats was the last sort of bastion of like an underground hip hop store in New York City, and that shut down. And that was sort of like a gathering ground. I mean, I I used to just go in there to see like someone's in there. Like I got time to kill. There'll be someone in there that I could shoot the shit with for an hour and just sort of talk and congregate. See, that that's the thing that I feel is being lost in the future generations of music appreciators, you know, with yeah. all this, like, you know, iTunes. Digital, I mean, yeah. Yeah, digital downloading. It's just like, I mean, I, I, I'd buy stuff off of iTunes, you know, yeah. pretty regularly, you know. I, but I do miss their going to a record store. There's there's a couple in this neighborhood, actually, yeah. that are good. There's, like, you know, permanent records. Right. I was here when, you know, when they opened up. I'm fairly good friends with the owner. And there's, like, another one on uh, Manhattan Avenue that's, uh, like, Grumpy's Records, I mm. think it's called, or, you know record grouch or something like that it's I, i've been in there a couple of times not nearly as much as i probably should yeah. but uh I, i'm probably wrong about the name man but it's like it's a new it's a new record store yeah. it's, i think it's called the record grouch and i think that name kind of put me off a little bit you know I mean? <laughs> it's like but, uh, i've been in there a handful of times and i bought a couple of records there 
But uh, yeah, there isn't. There isn't like. Uh, I mean, you know, there's still generation in the city. Right. But you know, just I feel like those are um, you know standouts. Like they're the ones holding in. You know, hanging in there. Yeah. But on a national level, I just remember being able to go on tour, and you know, you you look at your tour schedule and be like, all right, cool, we're, we're going we're going to be in Providence, so there's Armageddon records, right? You know, or going down to Baltimore, and there's like, oh yeah, we're going to go to Reptilian, you know. It's like I remember doing one tour at my old band Anodyne, and we had my friend Leaf was out on tour with us as uh, doing roadie, you know, work, and uh, you know, we were we were like picking out the dates where we were going to be in the certain cities where it's like, okay, here. You're going to have, like, you know, vintage vinyl when we're driving through New Jersey. You know, you're going to have, you know, Reptilian Records in Baltimore, you know. And it's like he was he had a list of stuff he wanted to get. And, uh, you know, he was just like, all right, you know, where, where am I most likely to get all this stuff? Yeah. Like, like budgeting out his money so he can be <laughs> like, all right, I'm probably going to drop, like, 50 bucks at this record store right. or $100 here. You know, now it's like you go out on the road and, like, most of those places are gone, man. Yeah. Like, Reptilian's gone. And, like... Nothing's come into fill its place. So it's like you were saying. There's there's that whole world of building friendships with people and getting to know people that's gone. I mean, even if you think about like two of the venues, I forget knitting. The old knitting factory yeah. mm-hmm. used to put on a lot of. I used to love certain times at the knitting factory where they would have like a metal show upstairs and like a hip hop. That happened so many yep. times where like. I could pop in and out of two or the you know, two or three of the rooms at the knitting factory and see several genres in one night, you know, which uh, are like Southpaw. Oh yeah, which is yeah. now gone. Yep, that's they, gone, right? Yeah, yeah, they used to put on a lot of great shows. Did um, have you been to any shows at the new knitting factory location? Yeah, yeah, it's it's weird. I actually went to Littlefield. Uh, have you been to that place? The basement of Littlefield is almost exactly like the old basement to the old knitting factory. Like that way bottom room. Yeah, room. like okay. yeah, yeah. You had to go down that corridor Three of stairs. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the new knitting factory. Yeah, I've been there a few times. I mean, it's weird. Like I, I'm, I'm not too big on when like venues close and then reopen as another yeah. name. Like I know they were doing that with CBGBs. They were going to open it. I'm like, dude, why don't you just call it something else? Right. Like. No one's going to shows at the Knitting Factory because it's named Knitting Factory. No. They're going there because, like, you either bring good bands or you bring good rappers or you don't, you know? Yeah, there haven't been a lot of good It's shows not like the yet. House of Blues, you yeah, know what I mean? Like, like a total, like, like chain. Yeah. yeah. The Knitting Factory in its new location, I got to say, there haven't really been too many notable shows there. I mean, they had, I mean, I saw Coliseum play there. That was awesome. Yeah. Um, I saw, uh, who was it? When Pilgrim... Uh, not a pilgrim. Um, oh, Jesus, Paul Bearer. Oh, okay. When yeah. they played there, that was an awesome show. Yeah, yeah. But those, those shows are few and far few between. between. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, Hellshock played there. I saw uh, Krieg play there a few years ago. But it's like, it's not. It's not like a spot, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think certain venues had a soul to them. Yeah. CBGBs had a soul. Oh. oh yeah. Knitting Factory had a soul. The old Knitting Factory had a soul. You know what I mean? Like. You walk to a venue, and even if you're just standing around, like, looking in the space, there are certain spots in that venue where you remember memories, moments that might have changed your life, or moments that might have affected you, or that changed friendships, or where friendships are made. I mean, souls are in venues. Memories are in venues. And, I mean, luckily, there are new venues popping up, Mm -hmm. uh, 
Like, I can't say enough about the Acheron and St. Yeah, Vitus. they're great, man. And they're run by people who understand what yeah, the fuck's going who on. Were, you know? And who were, I think, fans more so than promoters. I think a lot of promoters get into it because they want some sort of association or recognition right. or whatever. When I look at the shows that are popping up at the Acheron and Vitus, I'm like, they obviously went out of their way and might have took a hit in the pockets. To book oh, yeah. some of those shows. Sure. And they just made it happen because not only for the fans, but they wanted to see those yeah. fans just as much as the audience. Well, I believe that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. CB's like, I know, I know I, I, I sort of nostalgically look back on it, but I, I have to remember that I definitely, CB's was like a love hate thing, man, because, you know, it was more the promoters who did shows there, like Ralphie, you know, Rich Hall. Um, you know, Tyler King, like those guys put shows on that were good. But then, you know, like the, the institution of CBs was definitely yeah. like, uh, you know, a little bit shady. Like yeah, the, uh, yeah. I know. mean, without bearing too much of my own business, I yeah. uh, the show, I'm glad I got to book the shows I got to book there. Yeah. But it was definitely, yeah. Yeah, it was it was yeah. very it was very, you know, New York. You had, to, you had to be on your toes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember there was like a period of time like some larger venues, like, you know, the you know, like those uh you know, like a place like say Irving Plaza, depending on the show, they try to do this thing where they take a percentage of your merchandise sales, you know. That's so oh, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> because lately the last few shows that I've gone to at Bowery Ballroom oh, yeah. and Irving um Burning, whatever, fuck it. Uh, opening bands yeah. have having to been charged like twenty bucks for a T-shirt, and I'm like, you know, they wouldn't charge that at another venue or at another show. So it's like, what's going on here? Where like all three bands, whether it's the headliner or opener, are all charging twenty bucks? I'm like, are they taking such a big percentage, you know, of the cut from the bands that the band? Are they making the bands charge that much? It's well, such. There's there's two things at foot here. Yeah. One of them is yes, they are. The venue is taking uh, money, yeah. From usually they're taking a percentage. And, on, yeah, on and a I've big worked. I've tour. worked merch at those venues. Yeah, yeah, and you, yeah, you you got to count in in the beginning. Right. And you got to count out, and they don't trust you, and all this other stuff, and whatever. But then again, also on a package tour, the headliner, depending on how prickish their uh, their their tour manager is, will will dictate that all the bands charge the same amount of money that they, right. you can't charge like ten dollars for a t-shirt yeah because yeah. then someone's more likely to buy which is ridiculous because yeah. like, like dude there there was an opening band uh true widow oh yeah i, I like saw them, them. they were good. fucking excellent great, they opened for chelsea wolf mm-hmm. and i went down and i was gonna like i wanted to buy one of their shirts yeah and it was like dude i already bought one shirt tonight like I don't want to drop another 20 bucks. And like, I'd never heard them before seeing mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And like, I was blown away. I wanted to leave with something. Yeah. They're, they're you know great. what I mean? Support them for when they come back and whatnot. And it's just like, I mean, after the show, I ended up talking to one of, one of them. We worked something out. It was cool. But like, that's killing bands, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's not, that's not true in all cases, but in yeah. a lot of cases, it's something I've definitely been noticing more lately. And it's, yeah. it, it bothers me because it's like, dude, the venue's already sold out. Yes. You're going to kill it at the bar oh, regardless. Yeah. Why the fuck are you haggling the, the merch? You know what I mean? Like the lifeblood of a band. Cause it's not albums or CDs anymore. You're going to take, you know, cuts of their shirts. 
fuck off. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's bad news, man. Yeah. And, that, and that's, but that, that's where that whole thing comes from. And it's, you know, it's like you go to like a death metal show and there's like, you know, like $30 t shirts, like one sided. A lot of it's just because there's money that has to be paid to the venue, you know what yeah. I mean? And, and it's, you know. I mean, I'm more likely, here's the thing. I'm, uh, I like supporting bands. I'm more likely to buy three t-shirts for 15 or $10 than I am to buy two for 20. <laughs> if you give me a good deal, I'll probably overspend on just cause like, Hey man, at least they're like, they're keeping it cool for the fans. So I'm more likely to shell out rather than someone who I feel like, uh, you're trying to get like every cent out of me that you can. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember years and years ago, kiss a goodbye was on tour with, um, with obituary and, uh, you know, and they they got they got thrown out. They got thrown off of the tour, yeah, because they they were trying to sell their shirts for ten bucks, right? You know, and obituary was like, they're not not. I'm not gonna say the band, but like their tour manager yeah. was like, no, you guys got to charge twenty, yeah. You know, and, they, and then like, they didn't. Ah, and then they got thrown after three shows. They got thrown off, yeah. So, what are you gonna do? But uh, but yeah, man. Uh, you know, thanks for coming by today. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think we had a great conversation. We've been going for. Like, one and a half hours here yeah man uh i thoroughly uh, appreciate being invited i enjoyed the the time here today so where where can people uh get at you uh for the most part if you go to facebook.com slash lucid delusions that's l-u-c-i-d uh another d e-l-u-s-i-o-n-s lucid delusions uh at facebook you can find me and uh here I have some of my writing that's public. Uh, if you add my page uh, from this podcast, just let me know, and I'll make you. Um, I'll set the access so that you can view my other writings, uh, if you would like. And look forward to actually music coming out sometime in the next year. Right on, man! So, awesome. Yeah. yeah. You know, and once again, you can uh, you can hit me in uh, Twitter at, at Mike Hill HQ. Then the the website is www.everythingwentblackmedia.com. You can get you know blog posts. You can get streaming podcasts. You can also have portals to the awesome stuff available from Onnit Labs and from Dots of Sara Bags. So um, anyway, have a good night. Take care. <laughs> Front. Let your feet stomp. 
Niggas on the left, ratchet to death. Woods on the right, wild for the night. Monks in the back, come on in the track to the who is coming through. The outcome is critical. Fucking with my style, sorta like a miracle on 34th Street. In the square of Herald, I gained Ella. The bitch caught a fits like Gerald. Dean Ferraro, who's full of sorrow, cause the hope didn't win. But the sun will still come out tomorrow and shine, shine, shine like oh nine. Here comes the drunk monk with a quarter valentine. Past the bone, kid past the bone. Let's get on this mission like Indiana Jones. The Jizza, one who just represent the Wu-Tang click with the game and soul of an old school flick like the Mac and Dolomite who both did this. Claudine went to Coolia and had mad kids, so stop. The life you say may be your motherfucking own. I'll hang your ass with this microphone. Make way for the merge traffic. Wu-Tang's coming through with full metal jackets. Guard squad that's mad hard to serve. Confront hard, then burn hard gets what he deserves. Playing in the front, let your feet stomp. Niggas on the left, racks to death. Woods on the right, wild for the night. Monks in the back, come on in the track to whoop the response while I bomb that ass. You ain't shit, your whack ass town had your gas. He go to something the Wu-Tang crush. Souped up niggas on the stage get rushed. I don't give a goddamn on the shows you did How many rhymes you got or who knows you kid Cause I don't know you therefore show me what you know I come sharp as a blade and I cut you slow You become so pet as my style increases What's that in your pants are oh, human thesis Throw your shitty drawers in a hamper Next time come strapped with a fucking pamper I get sound beat, you better off a quitter I'm on the mound G and it's a no hitter And my DJ the catcher, he's my man Come on in the 